if we pie. ever threatened to play oh it, like I'd be like, yeah, let's great. try that. Like, Wait, who's that piece pie? Um, is it Chopin? It's Chopin. Yeah. It's Chopin, right? right. I mean, the, I had a. That's the Polish. Oh, I've been yeah, like yeah. trying to like. I have like. What else was I working on? Some like pseudo classical stuff, but. Um, yeah. You know. But that's that's badass, man. <laughs> and your sound on that instrument is fantastic. Thank you. No, I mean, I have to say, because I really, in all the years we've known each other, uh, most of my hearing you play has been on the telly. Yeah. Because, or a little acoustic here and yeah. there, but generally, maybe a few of the tracks on that Stephen Yerke record you did had some other guitar. Strat. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, but I think most everything that I associate you with is with yeah, the guitar. Yeah, I mean, but that has nothing to do with this, you know, I guitar mean, playing. You know. Th this is easier in some ways because... Assuming that, like most any of those kinds of things, like when you, um, you know, the whole thing about the Telecaster is the crazy, all the weird little little eccentricities, like the pickups, like between the difference yeah. in volume and tone between the bridge pickup and the neck pickup. It's like once you get the neck pickup, like you have that most amazing, like Ed Bicker, Ted Green sound, yeah. on, and the bridge pickup is useless. Once yeah. you get like the bridge pickup yeah. to get your Jim Campolongo sound on it. Then the neck pickup is like this deep, dark ravine kind of. Whereas yeah. these kind of guitars seem to me to have a little more balance between the nasty of the bridge still has has enough girth and the pretty of the neck still has enough uh, treble kind of to. Yeah, I mean, somehow. they're pretty mist. I mean, I kind of love uh, this pickup. I mean, because it's it's kind of, you know, got this nice little mystery. You did this chord. obviously are an inch closer because the scale length is an inch is shorter. that true oh yeah yeah you may not notice it but um, but because you do have big hands but but the um, do you yeah it looks like no it. I have wide hands me but too you, you I have wide, wide. yeah but you I mean it kind of it looks really similar yeah and they might are a little bigger Here's maybe it, yeah but it's like more of a catcher's mitt exactly like, exactly yeah. speak. and I was yeah. a catcher too. Were you really? Yeah, yeah, you could see. I caught this dude. You could see how my knuckles oh are all my fucked God, up. I caught a guy who went to, he got drafted by the Chicago Cubs. Really? A, a pitcher, uh, Herman Segelke, and he was really good. He ended up playing some in the majors, yeah. but he was like a 14 year old with a 90 mile an hour oh fastball. Yeah, and I was the catcher. Oh, 
So see, yeah, that's the thing is that kids are not ready for that kind of action. So wow, you you were a catcher. How long did you play? Like I did until like I started playing guitar and smoking weed, and then that was it. Oh, I mean, I I mean, I didn't. I felt uncomfortable around the guy the, the the guys then like I mean it wasn't them as much as me but I was still like kind of a geek you know I right. was like a nerd right um, but obviously you were physical and a big enough dude to play that position uh, yeah barely yeah barely but uh, that's interesting though because my son you know he definitely has the musical thing as well but he's really into the baseball thing and the catching thing and I think that the 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 whole jock thing it's a little different now than it yeah. was when we were kids. Like I think the, the the most of the parents encourage their kids to like not have that mentality. Yeah, you know? yeah. And, and, I, you know, and I'm older than see. you too. And like when I was growing up, it was like like almost like one of those um, bad comedies. You know, like uh, Animal House or something. You know, I can't think of the right. correct one, but where. Like the jocks were like these gorillas, yeah. and then there was like the stoners, kind of like Fast Times at Ridgemont exactly. High or something yeah, like that totally. is what I'm looking for. Totally. And that was the case, you know, they wow. were like these really, yeah. uh, you know, primal dudes, and exactly. then there was like, yeah. you know, and then I immediately yeah. went to, you know, whatever. Exactly. There was back then, there, there were not, not a lot of the Paul Ropes and options, no. <laughs> like the all-around <laughs> badass so, kind of guy, you know. Some of the stuff I was interested um, in talking about was just like, you grew up, did you grow up in San Francisco or in like Burlingame or Millbury? I grew up in South San Francisco. Okay, South San Francisco. Yeah, right. The industrial city. The industrial uh -huh. city. And it was, right, I remember getting off the airplane when I was a kid, it would say that. Oh, oh yeah, it still does. It does, really? Yeah. I remember I had a sixth grade or fifth grade teacher named Mr. O'Dowd and he was really disgusted by it. He goes, could you imagine if the Alps said the Alps on it? <laughs> and I never thought of it and I remember thinking, I wasn't quite sure what the Alps were um, right. in the fifth grade in South San Francisco, but I mean, but yeah, it's, it's, I've been up there on those letters too. Oh really? yeah. Yeah. Many times. But, oh, that's awesome. But yeah, I grew up in South San Francisco. It was a, like almost a lower middle class Italian and Irish, uh, suburbia. Right. You know, so. That's what a fr another friend of mine who grew up in uh, Redwood City at yeah. that time said, said, said the same thing. Very different, uh, kind of a, a place. Um, and especially the, the city itself. And I'm assuming in the 70s you started going to clubs up there and seeing music, and that's how, is mean, that how you got into it? Yeah, you know, um, yeah, we, I started going, um, I mean, I was really just into music, you know. Uh, my sisters, my older sister in particular, was really into music and although we didn't we weren't too close I'd hear it and she was into Dan Hicks and the incredible string band oh, okay. um, Hendrix and Dylan and all that and uh, so I'd hear it and you know I was pretty sensitive to it uh, I mean I guess because we ended up being musicians you know but so I'd hear it and then I started buying my own records and one of the biggest things that happened to me was um, is uh, I won this contest. I, I used to listen to uh, KYA. KYA, yeah. yes! I remember KYA. Uh, um, yeah, there was like, See, we um, had my age group because I think maybe I'm born in 67. Yeah, yeah. And, our, and ours was <laughs> Dublin, Berkeley, San Lorenzo, Cupertino, <laughs> San Jose. This was a camera store. You know? Yeah, I mean, I, I would like, I ought to Google it. I'm sure it's like on mm. YouTube or something. I hope so because I like oh, love that song. Totally. So but, you want a you want a record? Uh, well, yeah, I won. It was it was really a trip. I mean, I think I was about eleven, uh -huh. maybe 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 ten. No, I was ten years old, and it was I won the top ten singles of nineteen sixty eight in this particular month, and I won uh, the ballad of John and Yoko and uh, My Sharia Omar by Stevie Wonder and uh, In the Year Twenty Five Twenty Five and. Um, you remember exactly. Oh, God. 45. Yeah, 45s. Right, yeah. Uh, Creedence Clearwater, Fortunate Son, Amen by the Winstons, and the B side was, uh, or the A side was Color and Father. Yes. Uh, Ooh, that's but, a great, great song. Right? But yeah. I liked Amen. And then Amen, I saw it on the internet. It's like the foundation of like this, 
this hip hop groove. Like there's a fill oh, on really? it that, yeah, it's really interesting. Um, and I still have a lot of the singles. Um, so anyway, that really was kind of the beginning. Like, I mean, I wore those things out, you know, only like a kid in 1968 could. Well, and you're not, at that point also, it's like you're not going to the library and getting music. Obviously, there's no internet, blah, 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 blah. There's, there's that to say. But really, even then, you, you, it was limited. Oh. The amount of stuff you have is limited, so you would listen to the same thing over and over. I mean, over. even if you d I didn't like it, I'd listen to it. You know? <laughs> I mean, you know, because it was it. That was it. It was yeah. better than silence, you know? Yeah, yeah. Um, I mean that. Like, I won this, uh, I went up at the shopping center, I got this, I, and I actually still have it. Um, it was a George Harrison produced uh, Hare Krishna chant. And I mean, I could say, it's like, Dovinda Hare Krishna, Dovinda Bhaida, da 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 da. I still have it. And I listened to it like a thousand times. And I, I don't know, I don't think I liked it. You know, I wanted to hear Lady Madonna or some shit. <laughs> and, and anyway, so I remember listening to KYA, my transistor radio, and when like something like Lady Madonna came on, because now, now I prefer, uh, you know, uh, Mother Superior, Happiness right, is a sure, War Gun, sure, sure. or, you know, Lady Madonna's kind yeah. of a pedestrian you're to 10 me. years old, you oh, love that, though. Incredible, yeah. Yeah, yeah. God, it would come on. That was your like, favorite song. I mean, when we were kids, those were our favorite songs. Those, those were, were our favorite ones, songs. Right, that's what you're saying. Well, yeah, I mean, I certainly liked, uh, you know, um, Lennon songs, like, you know, And If I Fell. I mean, right, I think right. I had some good taste, but yeah, like back in the USSR, it was like, yeah, sure. Fuck yeah, this is pay dirt. And I just remember, I remember one day in particular, like I did hear Lady Madonna on the radio, and I was just like, I struck gold. You know, it was yeah, like yeah. this three minutes of euphoria because, you know, and maybe like the there'd be smile, a little smile for me, Rosemary. Don't remember that. Okay, like there is these secondary tunes that, but anyway. Then I started buying records, and the first record I bought, I still have, and that was Jimi Hendrix's Greatest Hits. Oh, man. Yeah, so I still have that, and then... So um, you're talking about, like, the early 70s at this point. Early right? 70s. When you had, like, you could make your own money and go buy your own record. I had a paper out. I had a paper yeah, out, too. Yeah, I actually have a trophy from the paper out. Oh, get out of here. Yeah, yeah, it was what? Carrier of the Year. It was Enterprise Journal. Oh, the year? Yeah. yeah. Oh, my um, God. You know, we that's getting up early. Oh, dude, I, do, for, I had paper outs for five, six years at least. Every morning at five in the morning, waking up and I delivered the Chronicle, and I delivered the Tribune. And, and Sundays, and, dude, Sundays sucked. And there was a time when my sister and I shared a big paper route together, and and the, and the, we started delivering um, the Chronicle in the morning and the Tribune after school. We were like enterprising. We were trying to like make some money. And you remember the collections, how you'd have to go around collecting from yeah. people, and it's all these, we had the serious deadbeats, you know. Yeah. But if you turned in your collection on time, you would get a big, you know how you'd go into the supermarkets and, you know, there'd be a candy bar, but the whole box, it has the candy bars? You could get a whole box of the candy. <laughs> so, you know, our goal was like, come on, man, let's make this, let's get all the collections in. So we'd get all the collections in, both paper routes, and get two huge boxes of candy and just sit in front of our TV, just like gorging. You know, but the paper route. I'm sorry, man. No, man. I mean, I I cannot. I I just flashed on like I had a much less demanding paper route. It was two days a week. It was like a local South San Francisco paper. Oh, okay. And it was the Enterprise Journal. Right. I remember that. It was Wednesdays and Fridays, and Wednesdays had a lot of inserts, but it was nothing like your Sunday paper. All that said, it was voluntary, and I I would like, but people used to tell. Yeah, come back. It was fifty cents. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, come back tomorrow. Yeah, come like, back tomorrow. I, I would, oh, and I would, I would, oh, I would wow. keep coming back, keep coming back, and finally they give me fifty cents. I'm like, God, man, you know. I mean, sure, it was 1970, <laughs> you know, three, but that's like three comic books then. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> which is like three bucks now. Exactly. Anyway, so 
Yeah, so what I was going to say, and I tell this every now and then to my students, like when I'm like old man in the sea, um, <laughs> I used to go to go see the record I was going to buy like next week. Oh, yes! <laughs> <laughs> like, just to go look at it, you know? Sure. And, and I, I still have a lot of the records. I, I bought John Coltrane Live in Japan when I was like 13 or 12 because I knew I liked long improv, but I didn't know what it was. I didn't know what you'd call it. Like, yeah. so I, but I knew I didn't like a bunch of three minute songs unless it was the Beatles. Wow. So okay. I'd go literally buy records, like go through the bin and go, whoa, there's like one song on this. <laughs> Who is this guy? Oh, Larry Coriel, Barefoot wow. Boy on wow. Flying Dutchman. I still have it. Wow. I bought Rare Earth Live in Concert. That was a bummer. Like, I didn't like that. Right. But the real, the one that was real pay dirt, and I, I was like, it's kind of not cool to say, but I found Eric Clapton, Derek, and the Dominoes live. And I remember looking at it going, wow, there's a song here. I think it's 17 minutes and 14 seconds. Like, Let It Rain. And that really changed my life. Like that, and I got John McLaughlin Devotion, you know. And uh, I mean, yeah. they were both really satisfying. I mean, I actually still think uh, that got voted the worst solo of all time by Rolling Stone magazine. <laughs> Which one? Uh, Let It Rain. And I still think, I mean, I'm just curious how long it is. I, I still think it's fantastic. Um, I'm sorry. You no, know, I, I don't know that. I, I have to. Yeah, ignorance. Like I don't know that stuff. Like there's a yes. huge hole in my well, it's, in my uh, East experience. West by Paul Butterfield Blues Band. Well, I got a dude. I have a Paul Butterfield Blues Band story for you because when I was a kid, when we ended up in Berkeley, his uh, son Gabriel uh, was my kind of like Berkeley, Streets of Berkeley running partner. Really? You know? And so Gabriel, and I just saw Gabriel Butterfield recently, you know, up in um, uh, upstate New York where he lives. And um, he's a player too, you know. Um, but we just used to run around Berkeley back in the day. I mean, you're talking the mid-70s. It was in the hippie height, you know. We used to run and get the collectible uh, bottles, you know. And you know, you remember that recycling place on on uh, Martin Luther King and Dwight Way? Oh yeah. We we just used to sit in that thing, collecting, searching through the broken bottles until we find ones we could turn in. You know, for money. Seventeen fourteen. You're exact. Oh my God, you knew exactly the time. How much time that was? Yeah, and I, this is the one I had because I made a poster of. Oh wow, yeah. Like I did that myself. Oh, you did. Oh, oh my God, yeah. Did a pretty good job. Oh, that, you did a great mm -hmm. job, man. This was it. This is, but anyway. So who's on that? The, um, you know, it's uh, Jim Gordon's on drums yeah. and Bobby Whitlock and Carl Radel. Um, Great. Again, drummer. like I usually don't beat my chest about this, and I try to be cooler. But you know, um, but yeah, that's that's how I. So I started getting those records, and that's how. And then I eventually started to play guitar. So. So you were listening to music, like basically, you, you got into the music. Then that got you into playing guitar. Yeah, yeah. It wasn't super easy um, because um, my older sisters had uh, learned like the clarinet or got clarinets, and they didn't. Right. They didn't. Uh, sorry, this hissing. Would, oh, that's okay. Um, they didn't pursue it, and so I wanted to play piano. Right. Um, and. Uh, I asked my parents, uh, you know, I think I was 11 or 10, I said, God, I really want to play piano uh, because I used to fiddle around on it down at my grandmother's house. And they were like, nah, you know, your right. sisters quit, you'll quit. You know, it's kind of oh, like, wow. you know, you won't feed it. I know you want a, 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 a horse, but you you'll, know, you'll pony, feed it. but yeah. you, you won't take care of it. And so that was a bit discouraging, um, even though my parents were really great people. It was just like, the third kid syndrome or something. Exactly. And yeah. so uh, then, so what I did was there was this guy across the street, his name was Austin Slater, 
And I went, I went over. <laughs> See, now that's such a great name. Is he like the CEO of like Lever Corp? <laughs> no, right no. Now he was, a, he like was about that. two years older than me. And I went over. I knew he played guitar, and I was just so impressed by it. And I went over his house one day, and he he was he had this new guitar, and he was playing Let It Be. And I remember, like, I'm like, wow, what song is that? And he goes, It's Let It Be by the Beatles. And I couldn't hear it. You know, it was like whatever, like. You know, whatever. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, and I was like, I was kind of, that, you know, he was doing that, and I was like, well, where's the organ and the drums, and where's Paul McCartney? But hey, it's Let It Be. Sure. sure. And I just was so impressed. And he ended up giving me his old guitar. Like, oh, damn. And so um, it, I still have it, and it was a Green Stamps guitar, a piece of oh, shit. Yeah, yeah, yeah. A Melody Plus. And I took lessons, I phoned this woman up and I had my paper out and this lady at the local music store in South San Francisco on Grand, Grand Avenue, oh, ironically, okay. um, Bronstein's music and uh, her name was Bunny Gregoire. Okay. And uh, I went down Dude, there. You, you've got Austin Slater and Bunny Gregoire yeah. in the same story. Yeah, the same like story. This. And I went down there and I was really afraid, you know, like I thought, you know, I'm going to go down there and she's going to go, no, you don't have enough talent, get the hell out of here or something, you know what right, I mean? Like, right. I didn't know. No concept that really they just want the eight bucks. <laughs> yeah, it was <laughs> six. Like, whatever, if you could show up with eight bucks or six bucks every week, in my case it was eight bucks. You can show up with eight bucks every week, it's fine, you, you passed. Which is the way it should be, Yeah. You know? I mean, and anyway, she was a beatnik. And she was six, about 60 years old, which I thought was like a thousand years old. And she was like, well, when cats are digging the scene and the groove and, you know, I was just like, wow, this is the mo wow, these are weird. Um, that, this is the most interesting person I've ever met. And, um, you know, I just loved her and she was a great teacher. Yeah. She turned me on to the George Van Epps method. Yes, the and George got, Van Epps yeah. books, man. Um, All three of them. Yeah, I mean, and I hated it. I hated it. idiot busy for years. I hated it. I wanted to learn Spoonful by Cream. You sure. Know? And uh, anyway, so that's kind of the story. So. Yeah, but that's, um, so when you, when you started learning, so I'm, I'm sure, you know, blah, 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 you go through all that stuff and, and eventually there's going to come a point where you start going into San Francisco to see yeah. the music and used to become a part right. of that scene and then you, 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 you jump in the... That took kind of forever even though when, you know, before I played guitar, I, was, I went to Winterland and, and oh, okay. I, saw, I saw the Almond Brothers. And I remember thinking, um, this is so distracting. This is really a trip. It's um, beautiful. You know, um, and I saw the Almond Brothers. I remember thinking, like, wow, I really dislike their guitars because they only had one horn. Like, <laughs> I, I, I get it. Why is that? Like, I'd get a two horn guitar, like an SG. <laughs> like an SG. But that's like, how you think when you're like 13. Yeah, and you don't play yet. Yeah, you know? yeah. So, I, but I, I saw like a lot of music there. I saw, um, you know, we'd go down there and see Robin Trower and, you know, I saw Led Zeppelin. Oh, wow. Um, what else? I saw, I actually saw George Barnes play, um, but not at Winterland. But yeah, that's when I started going to San Francisco all the time. And, uh, but it still took me forever to do everything, Charlie. Like, you know, I mean, I started playing with San Francisco guys probably, you know, shortly before you. I got into that world beat scene. Oh, you were with the Commotion guys? Yeah. Like Matt uh, Callahan? As you, as you were. And well, I kind of was, but I, I mean, yeah. I loved those guys. We, was, we were and we were. Tangential. Yeah. I was very tangential to that. As I, I was. was very mercenary as well, and probably not, uh, I'm not, I was not the bubbly nice guy I am yeah. now. Let's yeah. just put it that way. Hey, you know, I mean, neither was I. You know, I was like, you know, who cares about the American Indian? Right. <laughs> Oh my God! No, we can't. Now we're gonna have to edit that. No, but you know, we we. Uh, no, at the you're time. You're about the club commotion thing, and basically. I was. Uh, excuse me for interrupting, because I just said that I was the least hippie guy. Yeah. Like my idol, my idol, my musical idols. I mean, at the time, we're much different than now. I mean, I love Chet Atkins and Miles Davis and shit like that, but. 
I mean, I just was so not hippie. I was like into Marlon Brando. Yeah. You know, yeah. I mean, I, in a lot of ways, like, so that's why yeah. I didn't fit into commotion. Yeah. I, you know. I mean, you know, the interesting thing is that people would love to idealize all of the political Bay Area kind of the more left-wing political stuff, but the fact of the matter is, is like, you'd, you'd have a few people who were like really super dogmatic and charismatic, and they were the ones who would like make like a place like Club Commotion happen, or uh, La Pena, or Ashkenaz, you know, places like that, and then 90% of the rest of us were just like, oh cool, is that where the party is? Is that yeah. where the cute girls are? Is that yeah. where I get to play music? Sure. All right, okay, oh, so uh, you're talking about the Communist Workers Party? Okay, fair <laughs> enough, whatever, I mean, we wouldn't Don't have- beer! <laughs> yeah, yeah, we wouldn't have, oh, what beer I'm not supposed to buy? Okay, all right, fine, and then the rest of it was just like, wait, wait, where's that great music? But, all that aside, it, it was cool in terms of being a situation where a lot of different folks that you normally would not meet would come through that kind of thing. And and, and you would eventually head. bucket head. You. Well, you and I played that show together yeah, there. Joe and Joe Gore. Gore was on that show too, you know. I did, when I was uh, in that group, the Disposable Heroes of Hypocrisy, oh, yeah. we rehearsed there, you know. Oh my God, those herb rehearsals were painful, man. They were long and loud. And it's no fault of the guys, they were not musicians. So everything took a real long time for them to get under their belt. And they had, you know, and, and that guy, uh, what's the Island Records guy's name? Chris Blackwell. Chris Blackwell came to Club Commotion, it's like 1990, and like watched us rehearse and sat there through the whole rehearsal. You know what I mean? It's just like, what a weird world that was, right? You know, you would you would have these these like multi-millionaire record executives come to a place like Club Commotion to watch your rehearsal. You know, it, it's really, uh, really, it, really it hurts trip. to hear it in a way, like because I remember feeling that like vulnerable hope, like where right. somebody could like snatch you out of right. like Sixteenth and Mission yeah. into like you know whatever you imagine, <laughs> like exactly. the, the, uh, fantasized about. And I mean, part of it was even like being like a spiritual void in my, you know, my psyche and, you know, being that I thought would be uh, fulfilled by like some kind of like success. Right. Like, and I mean, it really, I, I mean, to hear of like, yeah, I remember that or I remember, I mean, I never really even got that close, but I remember friends like, would be signed and they put out their first record and it would like do okay and then their second record like the the label kept rejecting their material <laughs> like going here you should write more like this and i remember them trying to do it and like that's as close as i got and then i ended up just checking out and that's when i checked in that's when i got the 10 gallon cats together of course and that's when I mean, I, and you I did were the at same the elbow thing, room, but but I, yeah, I did the same thing. I mean, I was with that hip hypocrisy band because it paid five hundred dollars a week, which was wow, a hundred dollars more than I was making moving furniture, you know. <laughs> and I was like, man, this is a way Who better moving furniture for. Well, I worked at this place in um, West Berkeley called um, the Berkeley Outlet. And actually, it was a great gig. It was a very old school Berkeley gig. Like the couple, I think they were from Kansas or something. And he, his whole thing was restoring old office furniture, um, and used office furniture, and selling. He had a warehouse full of it, and he had a warehouse. And we would go take this big truck out to like places where businesses had gone under, or they were moving, or they were buying all new, really crappy office furniture. And he would buy out all of their steel case, Knoll, Ames, all of the classic, beautiful stuff that you know will last for centuries. He'd buy it for them for bargain basement prices. Sometimes nothing. Sometimes just get it out of here. And me and a couple of the other guys would go and uh, move all this stuff back into the truck and take it back and clean, painstakingly clean everything off. In fact, there was one time we went to uh, uh, someone's been in the box down there. We went to uh, it was somewhere way out in um, where is that town? Livermore, and it was like an aerospace. Um, some firm that, that dealt with rocks or something. Yeah, one of those places. And this desk, we had to take these desks were gigantic. They were like 300 pound 
steel monstrosity. So we had to move all these desks. We got them in the truck, you know, and, you, and everything had to be packed very meticulously. The boss there was really a cool dude, actually, and very, like, very meticulous. He had his way of doing it, you know. Um, but so when we got these desks back and flipped them over, the one that I had to clean had, like, what looked to be... Someone had this desk for 30 years, some draftsman or architect or some guy, same desk, and basically you flip the desk upside down because you had to clean it off this way, and if you looked at the bottom of it, there was like a semicircle um, that probably was like two and a half feet. If it was a circle, it would have been two, like two and a half feet in diameter, right? More even. And it was just like a lunar picture of... 30 years of this guy's boogers that he had been picking his nose oh, and putting them under oh, the desk. God. That's disgusting. <laughs> and the boss came and laughed at me. Ha ha, you have to clean that yeah. off. You know, we had to clean it off. It was disgusting, man. I needed a hazmat suit. It was so gross, Ugh. man. But anyway, so that was the gig. I you did some real, like, working class oh, shit. Oh, that was working. That was yeah. hard. I worked in a candle factory when I was in high school for a summer job. Candle factory all day. It's like that certainly cured me of any uh, romanticism of of those kinds of gigs, man. Yeah, I did a lot of that. What did you do? Well, I had a paper route. I worked at Candlestick Park in the parking lots and as a vendor. Oh my god! You know, so I you were like Willie McCovey time. Oh yeah, oh, Willie McCovey, wow. Juan Marichal. I mean, Juan Marichal was a little before my time. A uh, bit. Uh, uh, Barry, Bobby Bonds. Bobby Bonds. I yeah. remember Bobby Bonds smoking cools in the dugout. Wow. Yeah, smoking because they, they smoked. Sure, right. You know, it was like when everybody smoked. But I was a vendor. I had a job. It, I had. I did a forklift. I did a, uh, uh, you know, um, uh, you know. Uh, I can't think of it. Um, hydraulic drill, like a oh, oh a jackhammer. Jackhammer. I did. Oh, well, that's good for the hands. It was good for the hands. Um, I salvaged stuff out of burnt down buildings for a summer. Um, then out of high school, I worked in air freight. So I did forklift driving. I did worked in a warehouse. Um, but back in the I day, I sold shoes three times. Oh wow! For you know, so, so yeah, you know the deal. You know the deal. I mean, I, I don't know about you, but I mean, you know, like you you said earlier. Well, that's when I checked out. But really, it's when I checked in. And you know when you make that commitment to pursuing the guitar, the music, ultimately your voice on it, we put ourselves in that situation a lot of times. I mean, I mean, I was working these gigs. I mean, I'd come back from Blue Note being on tour. Everyone's like, "Oh man, he's huge! That that guy's he's touring the world now." We put out this Natty Dread record. I toured for like eight months. I got home. I had a thousand dollars in my bank. I paid all the bills and I was at zero and I immediately had to go out and take a gig like at a supper club like backing up like a jazzy singer kind of thing you know what I mean which is nowhere near as bad as like moving furniture or or, yeah. or, or, or doing a jackhammer but I'm just saying that's that's just part and parcel I think of this thing like I never really until recently since my wife has a good business until recently was was just like okay what's what's my even a couple of years ago I was just like okay this isn't going so well what's the job that I'm going to do now you know I'm still still in the back of my head and people would think oh man Charlie Hunter Jim Campolongo those guys got it made they're just like mm -hmm. you know raking in money hand over fist and blah 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 you never know you never know, and I mean, it, there's a certain, you know, I mean, you try and like, there's a fine line between not like living ahead and make, creating anxiety, like what, what am sure. I going to be doing when sure. I'm 70, and like redefining what you do, trying to stay contemporary, oh, you know, okay. thinking it's time, oh, it might be time to put a record out, like whatever, yeah, yeah, like, yeah, sure. so you have to think ahead, and yet, you know, it does create anxiety, and things have gotten tougher in a way but you know it's funny I remember uh, probably around in the early 90s maybe maybe it was mid 90s no it was late 80s because I was I remember saying uh, to another guy people like Charlie Hunter will be able to make a living the rest of their life um, because oh, you can so I mean well because and you really inspired me um, to, to change how I played and oh to and God. to shed because I knew 
that you could show up at a bus station in France and play and maybe make enough to get dinner. Well, that's you so know? funny you said because I I did that for many years. Yes. I lived on I was a street musician here, but then I lived. You know, most of the time I make enough for the hotel, or when we got real smart about that. busking, when we got real smart about busking, we and we learned really how to do it. Then, um, you know, when we when we got to basically Zurich, Switzerland, when just you couldn't you you couldn't not make money. You know, it was just like you go out on the street and and boom, you set up and bam. But you know, you're you're totally right, man. I mean, I did that for a long time, but you know, it's interesting to hear you say that to me because when I think about because I, I have like the same appreciation for what you do, and I've always been a fan, and I remember seeing you in the um, Paradise Lounge yeah. with the 10-Gallon Cats back when Scott and I, I think, were doing some gigs there. We, we were always at the Paradise Lounge. Like, there was always three stages going, and it, it was almost, of the three stages, at least two of the stages had people that yeah. I knew that were my homies, you know. And I remember always seeing you and just thinking, like, because, you know, I grew up playing rockabilly and played... Lots of those blues gigs, and, and my mom loved a lot, a lot of the music that you are into and exhibit and you're playing. Well, that was the records that she was playing, you know. Um, but And I had heard a lot of that. But the first time I heard you, my ear was like, wait a minute. Because at that time, I was like deep in trying to like establish my jazz fascism, some kind of, you know, I'd be trying to get in that kind of world. And, um, and I heard you, I was like, wait a minute, okay, that's the guitar vernacular that I grew up with, but there's something different going on in there. No, there's really something nice. different, that because, because, um, and because you had the, like you were talking about earlier, about that John Coltrane record and the improvisation and all of that, that's what you have. You have that guitar vernacular with the improvisation as well, with that thinking, thinking in terms right. of terms. Well, aren't we all? And then that never ends. I know? remember you came up to the Paradise and you wrote a tune called Bone Crusher. Oh, really? And you gave it to me, and I was so I was I was so flattered, but I was embarrassed because I really couldn't read it. Because <laughs> my writing was probably no, no. Terrible. My writing, my reading wasn't. I mean, my reading's a little better now, but and oh, and I remember like not dealing with it or something like you know as well as I should have. Um, shoot. Go, go get it. Yeah, yeah. Hey, hey, Carrie, what's up? I oh, know it's all good. So, what were we were talking about the? Oh, we're, seeing you at the, at yeah, the yeah. Paradise Lounge. Yeah, yeah. And and like, I mean, and I, you know, it's so funny to think about those days because you mentioned some kind of jazz fascism, and I just remember San Francisco then, like, was segregated. In a way, like there was like the rockabilly guys, like Big Sandy and all that. Right. And then there was my thing, which kind of fell in between the cracks. Right. Then there was Alphabet Soup and right. and and the scene at the Elbow Room. And the Up and Down Club. And, yeah, sure, the Up sure. and Down Club. And I just remember not like, I, I remember feeling like a little bit of borders or something. Like, That's interesting you say that because I never felt that way really. I felt that way when I came to New York, like heavy duty borders. Wow, because I, I felt the opposite. That's so like funny. I became I feel like we became closer. I became closer with guys like Dred Scott. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Where Dred Scott to me was just some asshole. That's so <laughs> you know? I mean I remember Dred Scott like wouldn't stop playing when um uh, you know, and I, I hate to go on record and say this, so edit this out, whoever edits it. <laughs> but there was like, we were waiting to play Funk Up. Elsie Love. Elsie Love. Love. Yeah, I was so, going to ask you yeah, about that. Yeah, we, I mean, that was fun when both of us were in that. Can oh, you imagine oh. both of us were in a funk band together? Wait, but I wasn't in Elsie Love. Were Jay in, Lane was in Elsie Love. You were in Loveland. With Mark Baum, weren't you? I mean, we. But you know what? I think I played a Mark Baum was always so good to me. Yeah, yeah. Much better than to, he. He was much better to me than he should have. Because like when I was like, I knew his brother Noah. You know, yeah. um, you know, who's an awesome guy, tragic and fantastic yeah. guy, and. Um, and I think Noah told him, you know, I, you know, I know this guy who could kind of play guitar, you know. And Mark heard me, and it probably was just like some zitty face sixteen-year-old kid. And I was doing gigs in the area at that time, but he would always like ask me if I wanted to do gigs with bands like that and stuff. And I was like terrified because 
all the gigs I were do was doing was like all guitar oriented stuff with three or four chords, you know. And, and these were bands with like arrangements and like yeah. minor seventh chords. I, and I can't <laughs> believe that. I mean, I can't believe that because I always knew you as a vir like what I considered a virtual. Oh my god! Not, I don't. There's, there's many holes. I appreciate it, but it, you know. They, I mean, not, I'm not like what bullshit here. It's like I can't believe. I mean, I literally don't believe you. Oh no, no, dude! I was a guitar player. I didn't. I'm just like you, man. I didn't learn how to read until much, much later, and not, not. I mean, I'm competent, you know, but I definitely would not hire me for a gig that required really, really good reading. I would not hire me. But no. you have a really good ear. Do you have perfect pitch or anything? No, no. I got good relative pitch, and and um, I, you know, but it's just the same as you, man. Like that minute waltz you play, I'm just like, I'm kind of blown away by that because I can't play like that. You know, I've got myself into such a corner, like man. Can I? I don't think I could actually play that anymore. You know what I mean? Like I could maybe at one time in my life. God, I've been working on but, that. I mean, it's yeah, but, still coming together. Yeah, that but. sounds awesome. And and you know the whole other thing is is you know it gets to a point where you can look back on stuff like that and you think about like people that were like that impressed you the most at that time, and then maybe as you've evolved in your playing, maybe that's not as impressive as it once was, or you have you view it through different uh, uh, glasses than you did yeah I mean it depends like I mean when I said like I checked out like I mean I was playing in those funk bands right and uh, I was playing a Strat I had two amps in stereo I was using a distortion unit yeah. and um, and I was I had been playing country music with my cousin's band called Country Breeze. And we did like <laughs> weddings and stuff. And we did um, country and I was into Merle Haggard, the guitarist Roy Nichols. Yeah. And I started getting kind of hip to uh, uh, Buck Owens and stuff like that. And it was really, really hard to get the record. Of course. Man. I mean, it was like fucking impossible. Yeah. yeah. Like, and you know, you'd buy like 14 records that just sucked. To get you know, the one good one. To, to yeah. even get one, like, barely, you know, and it wasn't like the stuff I really wanted. And then I found Chet Atkins, and I was like, okay, well, this is this is all pretty consistently good. But anyway, it's like I quit drinking. Mm. And I had been drinking quite a bit and getting high and stuff. And I just was doing gigs, and I was kind of white-knuckling it, you know, like... You know, I and 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 I, I I just thought you know, I don't really want to play this music. Mm -hmm. Like I'm playing this music for to party. Yeah. And 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 looking back, that's not really fair because I got to play with like Eric McCann and Sly Randolph and badasses. Elsie yeah. Love oh, is so yeah. badass, totally. you know. Yeah. But I really wanted to play like country, and so I just stopped doing gigs and I gave lessons. And that's where it ties in with it was so much better than digging ditches. So for about two years, I woodshedded and I just gave lessons. And I found this Guitar World magazine where it was like the Steve Vai eight hour practice method. And, and I, because I've been living in a void, you know, I mean, I was like, and I did it. I like, you know, it was like an hour of, you know, scales and thirds and then do arpeggios and then do this and do that and then transcribing. And and I did that for two years. And then at the end of that two years, I felt like, OK, I, I really want to try and play some country music as I see it. And uh, and I'll just finish up, you know, no, no, I, no, that's awesome. I, OK, like I knew the claw and I knew this other tune. I only knew two tunes. And the woman, I, I think at this point I was married to this woman, Mimi, it was a really nice person. We didn't, weren't married that long, but, you know, uh, she came in to like pra the practice room, not unlike this, but maybe 16 times smaller. Uh -huh. And she's like, what are you doing? I said, well, I booked this gig and, um, you know, I only know two songs. I, I, I and I'm, I'm like trying to learn some more. She's like, well, why don't you write them, some songs? And I was like, well, because I love this genre and there's so many great tunes. She's like, well, I don't. I think you know you can't write a tune. And Whoa! Like, and like she was just kind of you know it was like tough love kind of thing. And uh, and I said, well, 
you know, that's not a problem at all. She goes, I said, actually, if you write uh, song titles, I'll write a song for every song title. And she came back like in four minutes. With but like, like oh, And they were really good titles, like Botro the Robot, <laughs> Snake Stretch, Ten Gallon Cat wow. was one. Um, Snake Stretcher was one. No, no, that wasn't one. Um, Pig Pen. Like anyway, a lot, a lot of the tunes that are on the first record. Uh, and so I wrote all these tunes. Yeah. And that was it, how I got the Ten Gallon Cats together. Wow. And the first tune I wrote was, I actually called it Pig Pen, but it got changed to Blue Hen. But, so anyway, that's, that's awesome. how I got started doing that. So the other thing I wanted to ask you about was... Um, Roy Buchanan. When did you get into That's Roy a good Buchanan? Point. Yeah, we could And I do have a Roy Buchanan story for you too. Wow. Yeah, but tell me tell me first. Well, I got into Roy Buchanan through that PBS special um, that he did called The World's Greatest Unknown Guitar. Yes, and it was on YouTube and it's it's such a weird cinematography. It seems like everything is yellow in that. Yeah, it, that might be washed out. I have a DVD oh, okay. somewhere. But it was again like it's so amazing to look back at like pre-internet but um it was on pbs once and uh at the time and my dad called me in the bedroom the living room he goes hey jim and i, I didn't play guitar and and but he knew i liked music he goes you ought to hear this guy play guitar and i watched it and i was like wow this is really fantastic like i really liked it and it's weird because i thought he did a detuning thing that I've never I've seen it few numerous times since and I don't but I thought he did like boom do 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 you know and it's not on there but that's how I remember oh, it. Oh okay. Because you probably you saw him do it at some point. Maybe and but inflated the two things. Yeah, I mean he did it all, you know. Yeah. But anyway so I was really blown away by it and then I heard him on KSAN. Yeah, KSAN. KSAN. Yeah. Like, what a great station. Yeah. I heard Lonnie Mack. Yeah, you know, Lonnie um, Mack. And uh, who I'm still a big fan oh, of. Huge. And, uh, and Wham. Yeah, I have I have the original oh, on man. that. You know, it's a beautiful record. Fantastic. Um, but um, anyway, so I got I got the first Ray Buchanan record and just you know blew my mind. And then you know I I was really into him, but I sounded so much like him. I mean, I just put on a record and I'd sound like him. Sure. So I wouldn't listen to him. And then and that and then when I was about nineteen, I was driving by the Stone. And the I Stone, saw, yeah. yeah. On, on a, a Broadway, Broadway yeah. when it was at scene, you know, Mabue yeah. and all oh, the club. Chi yeah, Chi Club. I played the Chi Chi uh, Club. Many times. I played all of them. Chi Chi Club. Great club. The On Broadway. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so I'm driving by the Stone. I'm like, wow, Roy Buchanan's playing. And I was like, I literally pulled over, like, got parking, went in. It was like eight bucks or something. There's nobody there. Oh. And I walk in. And and Roy looked like some weird leprechaun. Yeah, because like, he had that beard that yeah, was kind of curled up. At the yeah, end. and he had like a short top body and like kind of long legs. Like he's a really trippy looking dude, you know. It, you know, very charismatic. And then nobody there, and it was fucking fantastic. Like it was really on. I mean, sometimes it wasn't, you know. And. I went the next night, and, and, and from that point on, I think I saw him like 30 times. And I saw him do, um, and I can't really do it on this, but I remember seeing him do it. Oh, yeah, yeah. And that really opened some doors for me. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, I mean, I need a pick, but he did Dead Thumb and um, that kind of... I mean, I'm not yeah, doing very well, yeah, but no, he, no. he did, and then he did all his volume and all that stuff. And so that's when I really got into Roy, and uh, you know, that really for, uh, formed a lot of what I do. Yeah, I mean, so much of what you you have a complete Roy Buchanan thing to me in your playing, but it's just the foundation of what you do from from the way that I hear it yeah. because he, he 
and and I he doesn't have the same kind of imagination you have, nor I think. But I mean, not to take anything away from him, because he was fantastic, and he had a really for the time that he was playing, the way he was playing, he had a huge breadth of of musical knowledge. But I just think that your whole way of viewing music is very skewed and far to the left of the way that he viewed music. Simply I, through the playing. And I, I can agree. hear that just simply through the playing. And that that makes uh, what you do using his playing, Chet Atkins playing, um, you know, and I would even go, you know, say, I don't really hear the Clapton stuff. I mean, I know you check that stuff out, but to me, I more hear that stuff. The older country guys, Roy Buchanan, Lonnie Mack even, that, that kind of stuff. And what, to me, and maybe this is unfair, but it just sounds like you have more of a um, curiosity towards, <laughs> you know, towards, probably true, towards yeah. stuff that really, you know, it's like what I was talking to Nels about like the guitar and jazz. It's just like, it's like the, the, the uh, analogy we were using was like, well, you know, you you've been hanging out you know with the guitar it's like your, your nerdy group of friends that you you love and you have all these crazy things in common with and you've done all these things with and you know and then you get out of high school and you you know you meet a girl and that girl is jazz and then you want all your friends to meet the girl but you're really worried that it's not going to be cool it's like that's what the guitar is when you get into the jazz world it's kind of like it's your nerdy embarrassing group of friends that doesn't quite fit yeah you know I mean, but. I did that via Django Reinhardt, so it was easier. Mm. You know, I had yeah. a ceramics teacher in high school turn me on a Django. As far as Roy goes, Roy, I mean, um, Roy was a, a, virtuo, a virtuoso bar band guy. Right. And, and in a, a lot great of way ways, of yeah. like, in a lot of ways, like, I really, uh, I mean, so am I. But I just can't do it. There's no place to do it anymore. I mean, I love those kind of gigs where you could be like the badass bar band guitar player sure. and move people, and there was like a sense of church, Absolutely. you know, playing, you know, uh, <laughs> and like wait for your solo, oh. you know, and the singer is like, okay, maybe he's a little drunk, and and that's what Roy did, and that's what Roy taught me, but Roy was also. Um, 40 something when he died. Roy was 30 when that first record came out and man I was like nowhere near he, where he was when he was 30 when I was 30. It took me like to be 45 years old to be where he was when he was 30. Also like yeah the whole curious thing like I just read a book uh, when I read the book about Roy Buchanan and it, it kind of I mean, it wasn't super flattering at times, but like he did a couple of, rec I mean, he did some bad records, you mm -hmm. know, records that, all his records have something good on them, but quote unquote produced records. Yeah, yeah. Or just like, because he wasn't making, that's the thing that people don't realize is like, we think of it in terms of like, we're listening to it as guitar players. We're like, I want to hear that record when you do the thing. Yeah, yeah, Come yeah. On, do the thing. And it's just like, when I got into Joe Pass, and Tuck Andrus and stuff like when I and I could not believe that. Wait a minute, you know who uh, who uh, Eric Clapton is? You know who Eddie Van Halen is? How come you don't know who these guys are? Like yeah. I conflated. I thought it was exactly like like if you're that good, it's so naive. But if you're that good, everybody knows who you are. So somebody like Roy Buchanan is making records and. They're like the the stuff on there, like you know, sweet dreams and the other things where they're just these kind of virtuoso, like just perfect everything guitar performances. Like um, though, like you know, there's also like seven or eight other tunes on there with singers, and they're kind of like, oh wait a minute, it's like there someone is trying to produce Roy. Like, Roy, we spent X amount of money on this record. You got to get something that's going to pay for the yeah. rest of this. Well, know? he had a, a little hit with Hey Joe, I think. Um, and you know he but what I read was that uh, the band came like to meet him the night the eve of the recording and Roy asked the guy he, he asked the keyboard do you sing and the keyboardist said well yeah kind of kind of not and that was the end of the conversation wow. the next day the guy came and he was like oh I'm the lead singer like yeah. Roy was not yeah 
you know, and thorough. I, and I'll tell you something about that one. And you may have even been at this show. I don't know why. Because like, Hell's like, Angels were backing him up or something? No. It, it, but it was when I was about oh, man, 16 or 17. I played guitar in this group called, which you may remember, it was like a Motown slash kind of rockabilly band called Reggie and the Rebels. No, I don't, Do you don't remember. No, I missed Do you that. remember the group Pride and Joy? Oh yeah. Okay, this is the younger brother of the wow. Pride and Joy guys. God. And um, these, this band had some of the Pride and Joy people in it, I think. And and so I was a guitar because I was the kid that would come out and do all those licks. All those rockabilly licks, like they wanted the Paul Burleson thing, or they wanted the Cliff Gallup thing. You know, that was my shit. So I'd come out and do that. So anyway, we opened for Roy Buchanan at the um, what's the name of that club that used to be down there? Wolfgang's. Yeah, remember Wolfgang's? Probably there. You may have been there. So we opened up and we did our our thing. You know, I mean, it was really like a, kind of a you know, a part, it was just a party kind of band. like you're talking about like a, a bar band, you know. Um, I had no idea if we were good or not. I, I, can't, I can't even remember, you know, but I remember Roy Buchanan, and that was the first time that I had ever heard of him. And he showed up to the gig, and to me, I'm like 16 or 17, and to me, I'm just like, who is this weird dude? Was he on acid? He was really. Yeah, because I was at a Wolfgang show, he was on acid, yeah. and his amp broke. Okay, so that amp. If it's the same night, the, the rhythm guitar player in this band I was in, he, the people at Wolfgang asked if, if Roy could rent his amp. And I remember Roy giving him $50 to rent the amp, which was a lot of money in that time. You know, it's like a Fender Twin, just like that excruciatingly loud kind of sound, you know. And uh, he didn't have a band, and I remember the band showed up, and to me it was just like, this is corny. It was like a guy with like a bass held up super high, yeah. and the drums with like the deep toms, and, and no, and he didn't, he just was like, I don't even care. Like, yeah, yeah, oh, totally, totally, totally. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Showing people the changes yeah. with his hands and all that stuff, but... It was really yeah. a trip because he did have that energy. Well, the Wolf, Wolfgang show, I went to a number of Wolfgang shows. Was Wolfgang's on the, the above on Battery Street, that place? Is it, or is it on, it was on uh, Columbus. It was on Columbus. Yeah, I mean both. It was like um, up the street from, uh, what's that place, Bimbo's? Yeah. It was up the street Now, what was the place on the, the... You know, by Battery Street, and it was like on. Uh, it was like this penthouse kind of place. God, I, and, I mean, I saw like Dixie Dregs there, John McLaughlin, right, right. Jaco Pistorius. Right. Anyway, right, I can't remember. Is that I, the old Waldorf? Yeah, the old, the old Waldorf. Waldorf. Thank you. Yes. I saw Roy at the old Waldorf, <laughs> okay. and he had a Fender Twin. It was excruciatingly loud. He did, you know, Green Onions and like showing. But anyway. The amp light went out, and he like just turned around and was like, I mean, for five minutes. Just looking at the Like amp. looking at it, not moving. And then finally, somebody came out and said, Roy, the show's over. If you want to stay for, excuse me, the late show, we'll be back in a half hour. And they kind of got Roy off. And like four months later, when Roy came out, he was wasted on the second set. And it was great, actually. Um, the the guy who booked it, I said, "Well, that was a really weird show." And he goes, "Yeah, Roy was on acid, and his amp like blew a fuse, and it blew his mind." And 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 then he said, like, the guy said, "Yeah, at the end of the night, he goes, whatever you do, don't tell my wife that I was on acid, because <laughs> his wife was like wanted him to be clean and sober, who eventually called the cops on him." The night he was fucked up and told him to keep him in jail. And then that's when. Yeah, and then he, they, he hung yeah. himself. So, like, God. I mean, that's a terrible story. It is terrible. Yeah. Oh, you know, you've seen this, right? I mean, I met, well, I met him once and he signed. Oh signed. my God, you're bringing a guitar you down. Live happy where you can. Whoa! Yeah. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah. What is that guitar, man? It's is a that? 62 Strat. Whoa, dude! Yeah. That is awesome. Yeah. There's your retirement right there. Man. Yeah, I mean, hopefully, well, one year. Oh, man. One year in New York. Yeah, well, yeah, exactly. You need to re you need to repair to Nebraska, son. 